Good morning. I don't know if you remember me. My name is Paul. <laughs> I uh, saw some of you uh, yesterday as uh, many of us gathered together to celebrate the life of uh, Janie O'Brien's mom. Uh, and uh, I just commented to some of you, I, I, I just missed two Sundays, but it feels like six months to me. Uh, I really missed you guys. I love being here with you. It's such a, a delight and a pleasure to be here. And when, it, when I miss it for a couple of weeks, I'm especially cognizant of how much I love this. So thank you for being here with us. Thank you for being part of our church family. Uh, mothers, happy Mother's Day. Mom, happy Mother's Day. Deborah, happy Mother's Day. But all you moms, happy Mother's Day. We'd love you. It's so good to be able to celebrate these things. I know you have family goings on, but to be able to do this as a church family too, uh, what a blessing that is. And just to uh, remind you to add emphasis to uh, the Baby Bottle campaign, if you're not familiar with that, maybe you haven't been part of that before, uh, what Elizabeth was talking about is there are a bunch of baby bottles out there that are empty right now. What we would love for you to do, we do this uh, every year with Life Services between Mother's Day and Father's Day. Take home a bottle that's empty and fill her up uh, with your loose change. It's, it's traditionally been sort of a change drive, but as Elizabeth pointed out, uh, checks are okay. And I've checked with them in the past, green money is okay too. Is that still true? Yeah. So uh, fill those up. Uh, what a blessing to be able to, to help support life services and what they're doing. I just love their mission and the way that they go about it. And so uh, take those home. If you fill up a bottle, we'll, we'll continue to have bottles out there in the coming weeks. If you want to take a second and a third, that's fine too. I know many of you have done that in the past. And uh, as long as we get those back by Father's Day, then we will bless this great ministry with those gifts. Sound good? Okay. It's weirdly unbalanced today. It's really empty over here and really... What's going on with this side? <laughs> Uh, one of my favorite kooky characters from history is a guy named Charles Blondin. I don't know how many of you are familiar with him. Um, he's French, so I, I think it's probably pronounced more like Charles Blondin, but that will be the last time I'm going to try that. Um, Charles Blondin was sort of an acrobat, and, and what he really excelled in was tightrope walking. And he became really well known for walking a tightrope across Niagara Falls. Uh, some of you I know have been to Niagara Falls, and when you think of the immensity of that, that, that waterfall, the water falls really, um, and thinking about walking across that on a tightrope. In the mid-1800s, he gained some notoriety for doing this. And he would do all sorts of like goofy stunts. You know, he, he put his manager on his back and gave him a piggyback ride across the, the falls on a, on a tightrope. Uh, he would uh, roll a, a, a wheelbarrow frequently across the tightrope. Uh, my favorite was that he once took a stove on his back, like a coal-fired stove, I guess, and took this stove and partway across on the tightrope, he sat down, set up the stove, cooked himself an omelet, ate the omelet, and then got up and came back. Just a kook, right? <laughs> but there's a story told that I don't think is just apocryphal. It seems to be a true story, and it may have happened more than once, because people would gather and watch him. I mean, he'd really gather a crowd. It was exciting. 
And because he had done this thing with a wheelbarrow multiple times, and a wheelbarrow even loaded up with, with bricks, you know, rocks, like he'd, he'd load it and, and take it across. And so he said once, how many of you think that I could put a person in the wheelbarrow and go across Niagara Falls? And everybody said, yeah, we sure do. Let us see that. And then he said, of course, okay, I'm going to need a volunteer. <laughs> and then the crowd got surprisingly quiet, <laughs> or maybe unsurprisingly. And listen, I'm not trying to badmouth the crowd that was there. If I had been in the crowd, I guarantee you my hand wouldn't have gone up, right? You understand that sort of tension and, and people saying, well, yeah, we sure think you can do it, but I don't want to get in there. He did finally find a volunteer who was willing to sit in the, the wheelbarrow and everything was fine. But it sort of paints that picture between an intellectual belief of something and more of a, a heart commitment to something, which is why I love that story. That story has been frequently used to sort of illustrate this idea of faith in our lives. As we continue to talk about the power of the resurrection, and if you're here with us for the first time, you might see that up there and think, boy, they forgot to take that down after Easter. No, we didn't. We didn't. As it turns out, just as the biblical authors, as the apostles, all wrote heavily about the resurrection of Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of our faith, we want to continue to discuss this and, and to interact with this. And so it's been a couple of weeks, but if you will, I want to start uh, with Romans chapter 8, which is where we left off uh, with this. And the last thing we discussed was that the power of the resurrection for us is freedom. And the Apostle Paul in this letter writes frequently about that. Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. This is a critical, important fact for the Apostle Paul. He hits this one really frequently too. And I just want to point out again, when he says sons of God, it's not because he's only talking to males. Remember, in their culture, females would not typically have been heir to an inheritance. They didn't have the same sort of uh, uh, privileges as male heirs. And so what he was saying very clearly to men and to women is you are sons. You have full privilege. You have full benefits. You all are heirs. You're all sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. And I don't know if you remember, it was three weeks ago. It was a really long time ago. But I, I said just in passing when we talked about that, we're going to circle back to that idea of fear. That's today. You're welcome. Because what we really discussed was this concept of slavery, of bondage, the reality that every single one of us is born into this bondage, this slavery. We all need rescue. If you think that you're a person who didn't need rescue, I'm sorry to step on your toes this morning, but you're wrong. You do. You did. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul says that's the reality, but we've been set free from that, all of which is predicated on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. But he also throws in there this concept of fear. 
this idea of fear. And he says, you didn't receive a spirit of, flavor, uh, of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Love that passage. And I want to take you now, if you will, to the book of Matthew. Uh, one of my favorite, uh, the 50 cent church word is pericope. One of my favorite narrative chunks of Jesus and his interaction with his disciples, with his followers. Matthew chapter 14. I know many of you are really familiar with this. We're going to start in verse 22. But if you scan up, I know many of you have headings, you know, subject headings in your Bible. And, and we've discussed before, those heading titles are not Scripture, but they've been added by the editors of our, of our translated Bibles, and they're very helpful. And as you scan up, you might see that immediately preceding this story is the feeding of the 5,000. You know, that incident where Jesus is teaching, and then there are a bunch of people sitting there who are really hungry, and the disciples say, well, I mean, clearly there's no food here. We ought to send everybody home. And Jesus said, no, there's food here. Let's round up what we've got. We'll feed them. It's no big deal, <laughs> right? I'm paraphrasing a little. And this amazing miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. But then right after that, verse 22, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and to go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. This is on the lake shore of the Sea of Galilee. And so Jesus tells the disciples, all right, I'll send everybody home. I'll dismiss everybody, wrap up for the day. You guys go ahead and get into the boat and go to the other side. I don't know, it's not here, but the fact that it's not here just may be that it's not recorded. I don't know if any of the disciples thought to say, wait a minute, how are you going to get to the other side? Right? And that'd be my immediate question. Wait, are you, I mean, if you walk, it's going to take a really long time. But, you know, they do. He tells them, get in the boat, go to the other side, I'll see you later. In verse 23, after he had dismissed the crowds... He went up on the mountains by himself to pray. And when evening came, he was there alone. This is kind of a major focus of, of conversation, of study for us at our men's retreat. You know, we saw the recap video of the men's retreat. This was sort of the main topic, you know, this idea of how did Jesus manage his life as we're called to be followers of Jesus, as we're called to be fully devoted followers of Jesus to mimic him, to imitate him. I mean, we see Jesus did this frequently, that he would go to a quiet place by himself and he'd pray. And he does this. And there he was by himself in the evening. Verse 24, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land and beaten by the waves for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Okay, stop. <laughs> First of all, the, the lake and the storm, and, and, and you might be aware of this, but it's one of those lakes, as with a lot of lakes, where locals will say, boy, sometimes those storms just like come in and it's, it's quick. You got to be careful. You, know, you don't want to get caught out there in one of these storms because they can be pretty nasty, right? And you know, maybe because it's a smaller lake, you look at a map and you see the Sea of Galilee. It's relatively little, you know? And just like if you've got a great big volume of water 
It's maybe a little bit more difficult to stir it up than if you have a small volume of water. You know, it's really easy to get it sloshing around. And so winds can come in and really immediately whip this lake up into a froth. And that's what's going on for these poor disciples. They're stuck. But I, <laughs> I love so many of these amazing miracles that are performed by Jesus where the narrative is just very understated. You know, it just says, yeah, they were out there stuck in the storm and Jesus came to them walking on the water because no big deal, right? But the reality is, it is no big deal because he's the creator. I mean, one of my favorite descriptions or, or definitions of a miracle is it's simply creation obeying its creator, so in a way, it is no big deal for Jesus. He's just like, yeah, if I want to walk on the water, I can walk on the water. And so he does. And he just walks out there to this group of disciples stuck in a boat in the storm. And when the disciples saw him, verse 26, walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And here again, I want to make sure, I, I think sometimes because we're so familiar with these stories, we may fall to the temptation of rolling our eyes a little at the disciples. Boy, what a bunch of numbskulls. Don't they get it? Come on. Come on. Put yourself in their shoes or their sandals. You know. You're in a boat on a stormy lake in the middle of the night, and somebody comes walking on the surface of the water to you. Go ahead, tell me you're not scared a little bit by what's happening right now. Hmm? They didn't know what to think. And we might say, well, why not? They've been with him. They just watched the feeding of the 5,000. Okay, fine. But this is still weird, right? And he's just walking up to them. And so they panic a little. It's dark out. All they see is, is maybe a form at first. They don't know who it is. And so they're afraid, and they say, it's a ghost. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. And then Peter answered him. And, and because of the way this plays out, it seems like there is still some distance between the boat and the Lord. You know, they, and it's dark. And so they hear this voice, but maybe they still don't have recognition. And so Peter says, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. <laughs> I love Peter. Peter is so exuberant, you know. Peter gets really enthusiastic. He's all in. But sometimes he's all in kind of for the short term. I mean, as an aside, this is one of the, the, the proofs for me of the resurrection, because after the resurrection, Peter changes. Make no mistake. Peter gets exuberant, and he stays exuberant, because he just knows, I've got nothing left to fear. Jesus Christ is alive. I'm not going to fear anything ever again, you know. But here, I, I love his initial reaction, which is, well, Lord, if it's you, can I come walk on the water? Uh-huh which is a little crazy. Remember how I told you I probably wouldn't have raised my hand to get into a wheelbarrow and go across a tightrope? I'm not sure I would have said this either. This, this is why I love Peter, though. You know, he's just so enthusiastic. God, I want to go. 
And Jesus said, verse 29, come. So Peter got out of the boat, and he walked on the water, and he came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And I said that really dull, you know. He cried out. He's in a panic. Lord, save me! I don't know if Peter could swim. I presume he probably could. He's a fisherman, you know, by trade. He'd lived on the coastline here. He probably knew how to swim, but it's a storm. Have you ever been in the unfortunate situation of being in pretty rough water? Larry's nodding his head real vigorously over. It's scary. I'm sorry. I don't care if you can swim. It's scary. But it says that Peter saw the wind. Now, of course, you and I know you don't necessarily see wind in and of itself, right? But you see the effects of the wind. I think what Peter sees is this water whipped into a froth, these waves. He starts looking around and he realizes what he's done. He realizes the relative insanity of the fact that he has (laughs) gotten out of a boat and is now walking on water to go meet Jesus, who is walking on water in the middle of a storm. And he panics, and he falls, and, he, and now he's in the water, and he feels like he's drowning. And he screams out in panic, Lord, I need help! What do I do? Jesus does and says something very interesting. First of all, verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him. Immediately is a word that's frequently used by Mark, but, you know, he doesn't have a monopoly on it. Here in this case, Matthew uses this this idea of immediacy and how quickly the Lord Jesus Christ responded to people around him. And and so it says, you know, he didn't string him along. (laughs) He immediately reached out his hand and he pulls Peter up. But then he said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I think that this is a a fairly gentle rebuke on the part of Jesus. I I, I don't think that he's scolding Peter harshly. But he does say something very instructive. Where was your faith? Why did you doubt? You know, when I was uh, studying and, and reading and praying about today's sermon... And you'll notice there's sort of been a theme, you know, the power of fill in the blank. And it's typically been the power of the thing that is opposite from the thing that we've been delivered out of because of the resurrection. And so when I thought about what's the opposite of fear, honestly, my very first thought, my immediate thought was courage, right? The power of courage. But as I continued to to just be in these texts and to pray about this, I thought, I'm not sure that's really quite 
right. In fact, some of you maybe have heard courage described not as a lack of fear. Courage is when maybe you still have fear, but you still do what you need to do. That's courage, yes? And yet Jesus, our God, all throughout Scripture, we see constant uh, admonitions to not be afraid. He doesn't just simply say, be courageous. You might be afraid, but have courage. There are many admonitions to have courage, but do you notice what is so often said? Don't be afraid. That's a little bit different. And I got to thinking, I don't think the the opposite of fear is necessarily courage. One can have fear and still be courageous. The opposite of fear, I think, is something more like confidence. And this is what Jesus is saying to Peter. Why did you doubt me? Why are you afraid? Why did you lose your confidence? And we don't get to see any response from Peter. Peter may have remained silent, as the text seems to to lead. Peter may have said, well, because the, you know... (laughs) But I think the key here, and what Jesus is pointing out, is that there came a time in this narrative when Peter stopped focusing on Jesus Christ and started focusing on all of this, the wind, the storm. Now, it's interesting that Jesus at no point says, there's no storm. He doesn't say that. At no point does Jesus say, well, sure, there's a storm, but storms aren't that big a deal. He doesn't say that. What he says is, why'd you doubt? (laughs) Why did you start paying attention to the storm? He doesn't just, you know, brush it away as if it's not there. But he points out very simply and powerfully that he is there too. And that's the problem, isn't it? At the end of the day, the problem didn't become the storm. The problem became Peter ceasing to keep his focus on the God and creator of the universe. And Jesus says, Peter, why'd you do that? (laughs) Oh, ye of little faith. Oh, ye of little confidence, right? Why instead of being confident in me and in who I am, why did you fear? Yeah, there's a storm, but I am right here. I am walking currently across a lake to you in the middle of the the Sea of Galilee. You just got out of a boat. I mean, you sort of, you know, I, I, I I don't want to go too far speculating. I don't know that Peter was bluffing, but you know, it's almost like he says, God, if it's really you, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to get out of the boat. And Jesus perhaps calls his bluff and says, okay, get out of the boat. And Peter, to his credit, does. But then all of a sudden he starts fixating on this, on the water that I'm sure looked terrifying, on the fact that it was dark, I mean, we don't know if this was a moonless night. It was overcast and you couldn't see stars. I mean, I don't know. 
But it was scary. I mean, it really was scary. But Peter focuses on that instead of focusing on Jesus. And I think that's where a lack of fear comes from, is a focus on Jesus. If you want to turn to John chapter 14, in verse 2, there's another well-known passage where Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. This is shortly before the crucifixion. But even then, even knowing what he's about to undergo, he's in the process of encouraging his disciples. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Just stop and consider what he's saying. He's about to die. Huh? But he's still promising them, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Do you know that? Hmm? And he says, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. A, these are the sort of statements that got Jesus into extremely hot water with the Pharisees. But B, he is stating very explicitly that he is God himself. Yeah, which is why he got in so much trouble with the Pharisees. They just couldn't hear it. They just wouldn't listen. But Jesus says, listen, I just want to remind you, I'm going away, I'm going to go make a place for you. And if I'm going to go through all the trouble of going away and making a place for you, doesn't it make sense that I'm going to come back and get you and take you there? But do you realize what he says, what this context is all about, what he says in verse 1? Don't let your hearts be troubled. Jesus knows that in mere hours from this conversation, there's going to be a, a wicked storm coming. He knows that his disciples are going to flee. He knows Peter himself is going to have moments again of this initial exuberance and enthusiasm, and I'm all in, let's fight! Only to later on deny that he even knew Jesus Christ, just as Jesus predicted he would do. There's going to be a storm. It's going to be fearful. It's going to be frightening. And Jesus says, but listen, don't let your hearts be, be, uh, be troubled. That Greek verb there for your heart being troubled it's to stir up like a, a bathtub or a pot or you know some volume of water kind of like the sea of galilee was stirred up and he says don't let that happen to your heart in other words don't be afraid listen i'm going to make a place for you don't you think i'm going to come back and get you and take you to the great place that i'm going to prepare for you so don't be afraid. We see it over and over and over again. And if we can finish in 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy is uh, one of the pastoral epistles, is what it's called. 
because it's one of the letters that the Apostle Paul specifically wrote to some pastors. In this case, a pastor called Timothy. And the, the title, Second Timothy, may lead you to understand that it's his second letter, at least that we have. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, this is Paul, very near the end of his life. And he knows that. You see Paul earlier in his life and ministry being uh, certain not only of Jesus Christ and of his promises, but, but being fairly certain of a timeline that Jesus did not explicitly lay out, which was that his return would be during Paul's lifetime. Now, in the twilight of his life, he's maybe starting to think, yeah, that might not happen. But he's really urgently interested in leaving whatever teaching he can to people like Timothy before he goes. You know. And then this dear letter, because Paul loves Timothy. I mean, you read this, and it's just steeped in, in Paul's personal fondness for Timothy. But starting in verse 6, for this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. But here again, in this post-resurrection reality in which Paul is living in, fully aware of, He goes on to build a strong basis for this statement, we don't have a spirit of fear, which is all about Jesus. Therefore, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who, get this, abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And I'm going to stop there. Even though the sentence continues, the Apostle Paul has a penchant for writing incredibly long sentences. (laughs) But as he reminds Timothy again, you don't, we, I mean, he says we, We have not been given a spirit of fear. And Timothy, you don't need to be afraid. Why? All because of the power of the resurrection. It is all predicated on the power of the resurrection. That's the power. That's the foundation. That's the basis for our call to be not just courageous, but confident utterly in our Lord Jesus Christ and free from fear because of that. Hallelujah. Because the power of the resurrection is the power of a confidence, a complete opposite to fear. And may I just be really bold and get all up in your face and say that some of us, because listen, I'm talking to myself too. I've said this so many times. I mean, I'm preaching to myself. (laughs) I don't get to stand up here because I've got this all figured out and I never struggle with these same things. I do. Promise you, I do. But I'm afraid that too many of us spend far too much of our time in fear. That's just it. 
we spend far too much time in fear. And we don't need to. We're not supposed to. We're not called to. God, all throughout the Old Testament, says repeatedly, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus, in his interaction with his disciples, says, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus' apostles, who by the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit left us, the rest of the New Testament, continually say, you don't need to be afraid. But there's a reason you don't need to be afraid. Nowhere do we just see this. Don't be afraid because being afraid is dumb or it's for the weak. or That's not the point. The point always is don't be afraid because God. Huh? Don't be afraid because Jesus Christ. Don't be afraid because of the power of the resurrection. You don't need to be. And the problem in that account with Peter walking on the lake is that he starts to fixate on all of this. And Jesus never told him that this wasn't frightening. What Jesus wanted to get him to see was, but me, I'm right here. Just look right here. Just keep your eyes right here. You're good. You don't need to be afraid. You can have an absolute confidence because of me. And after that happens, Jesus goes to the cross. He is killed. He gets put into a tomb. And then on the third day, praise God, he walked out of that tomb. And by the power of that resurrection, it is the final nail in the, the coffin of fear itself. Where it ought to be. And so the question for us is, why do we spend so much of our time in fear? I want you to consider this morning what you might be afraid of. And I think it's going to be different for a lot of us. You might be fearful of your present, of what's happening right now. You're in the thick of something. Maybe it's health-related. Maybe it's finance-related. Maybe it's job-related. Maybe it's your finals coming up. I mean, I, I don't know. There, there's something right now. And I just want to tell you, the point is not to say, those things aren't important. That's not what I'm saying because that's not what Scripture says. What I want to remind you is, but Jesus, your resurrected Savior, in whom you can have utter confidence, what do you need to be afraid of? You might be afraid of your past. You might be afraid of things that you've done and, and you're worried they're going to really catch up to you. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, those things are, are unimportant. But what he says is those things pale in comparison to me. Just look at me. Stay right here. You might be afraid of your future. Whether it's a future of, again, some of those other things, what's happening with your life, that uncertainty of what may or may not happen, an uncertainty about our world, about wars, about our culture, about what's happening in our nation, about, and again, 
The point isn't whether or not those things are significant or not, but the point is that sometimes we fixate on those things and we end up mired in fear when our Lord Jesus Christ said, you don't need to be afraid. Do you hear me? You need to have zero fear because of me, your resurrected Lord and Savior. Stop living in fear. I don't know what your fear is today. I mean, if we had time, I could tell you about the fear that I struggle with. But you've got your own. I don't want you to focus on me and my fear. I want you to focus on you and your fear. And to be reminded again, to be drawn back again to the nail in the coffin of fear, to a risen Lord and Savior, who through the power of the resurrection has abolished fear for you. Where in your life is Jesus saying to you, oh, you of little faith, just look right here. Why are you doubting in me? Why do you lack confidence in me? Why do you have fear? Not because that thing that you're dealing with, that's no big deal. It might be a big deal. But Jesus, hallelujah. But Jesus Christ, our resurrected Lord, says past, present, future, it doesn't matter. You need have no fear or worry or concern. You can let not your heart be troubled because of the power of the resurrection. You may need to be reminded of that right now. That's good. That's why we gather as a church family. That's why we tell each other these things. This may not be new information, but it might, need to, it might be a reaffirmation that you need to hear this morning because that's how the Holy Spirit works. If you're here, I want you to consider whether you need to be refocused on the risen Lord who through the power of the resurrection has said, you need to have no fear. No fear because of your utter and absolute confidence in me. Where do you need to refocus your attention, your vision, your heart? On the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Stop looking at the waves. Stop looking at the wind. All you need is Jesus. Hallelujah. What a good, gracious, powerful Savior. Father God, we thank you for the rock that you are. We thank you that your holy word doesn't simply tell us to be courageous in the face of fear. It tells us we can be free of fear. And that that has its culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ who abolished death itself, who conquered death itself and now says to us, God, some 2,000 years later, we are still waiting expectantly for the return of our Lord and Savior. We look forward to it. And until that time, it's good for us to be reminded that he's gone away to make a place for us and we know we have confidence he's coming back. 
Why would he go through the trouble of making a place for us and then not take us to it? But God, we confess to you this day we still get mired in fear. We still get bogged down in it. We wring our hands. We worry when the clear message of your holy word is that not only do we not need to do that, we should not do that. And when we do, it points out a lack of focus on our risen Savior. So refocus our thoughts. Refocus my heart. And for each and every person here, for whatever it is that they may be fearful of, remove that fear from us, God. Not because the thing is no big deal, but because you are. And God, as we so frequently pray, if there is anybody here with us physically, here with us online, who doesn't yet have the assurance of salvation in Jesus Christ, that this would be the day that they would recognize that out of your deep love for your creation, that you have made the way for us to be not just free of fear, but to be rescued, to be saved, to be given a whole new life, to be made new creatures purely on the basis of what Jesus has done. To understand that we can't earn it. We can't just be good enough to meet the standards of a righteous God. But Jesus, as that righteous God, did the work for us. And all we need to do is trust him and be moved immediately from death into life. And if that's you today and you've never done that, there is nothing preventing you from doing that right now. God, we praise you for your power. We praise you for your salvation. We praise you for your love, for the fact that you are slow to anger, for the fact that you are our solid rock. And as we close and sing now and are reminded, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And it's in his name we pray this morning. Amen.